All right, let's open our Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 9 and verse 13. Stop having Pentecostal thoughts right now. I'll try and work in an amen or two. How's that? Exodus 9, 13. Navigate on your device. Open your Bible. The topic, as darkness plagues all of Egypt, Pharaoh dismisses Moses, who tells the monarch that he will never talk with him again. The title of our message, Hello Darkness, My Next Plague, I'll Never Talk with Pharaoh Again. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this text is is just rich with meaning for us, but we need your spirit to reveal that. We want to understand what happened between Moses and Pharaoh, how it furthered the redemption narrative, how you redeemed your people and got them out of Egypt. But we also want to know what it means for us. And we want to be right on target with that, uh, Lord, because we need that encouragement. And so be here, be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. You may have seen it. The show is called Darkness. It's a Discovery Channel program that follows three people over the course of six days as they try to make their way through a dangerous cave. Sign me up, right? Yeah, no, no thanks. There's no light to guide the contestants as they crawl through nearly five miles of tunnels across 55 acres sprinkled with 90-foot drops named the Chasm of Death. The crews filming them have special cameras. They can see the contestants, but the contestants can't see them. That's even creepier. The tagline reads, In darkness, three strangers push themselves to their absolute limits in complete darkness Enduring days buried underground while navigating prehistoric cave systems, ancient subterranean cities, and centuries-old abandoned mines. By the way, there is no prize money, just bragging rights. Maybe you read about the blonde woman who fell down a well. After she was rescued, a reporter asked her if it was dark down there. She replied, I don't know, I couldn't see. (laughs) True story. I have my fingers crossed in my pocket. (laughs) Three more signs plagued the Egyptians over about an eight-week period with hailstones, then locusts, and then this darkness. Despite their severity, the Lord reveals himself as merciful. In verse 15, before the hailstorm, the Lord declares, Now if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. In other words, he could have easily wiped them out at any time. It was merciful of him to hold back the fullness of his wrath. And then in verse 19, he says, Therefore, send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field. For the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home, and they shall die. In other words, God mercifully provided a way for them to be saved from the consequences of the storm. There's a famous verse in the Old Testament that mentions God's wrath alongside his mercy. It was uttered by the prophet Habakkuk at a time when God was going to discipline his own people. Habakkuk asked of the Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. It's Habakkuk 3, verse 2. More than a prayer, it shows that Habakkuk knew God could and that he would remember mercy. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he wishes that all would come to repentance. I'm going to organize my comments around two points. Number one, when you declare God's wrath, remember his mercy. And number two, when you are disparaged about God's wrath, reiterate his mercy. Let's take a look at declaring 
uh, God's wrath and remembering his mercy in the episode in chapter 9. The largest recorded hailstone in the U.S., nearly as big as a volleyball. It fell on July 23, 2010 in Vivian, South Dakota. It was eight inches in diameter and weighed almost two pounds. And so that was what we call in the meteorological business a doozy. Now, I doubt that the Egyptian meteorologists were doing much in the way of measuring during the hailstone God brought to bear upon them. It was so terrifying. So let's read about it in verse 13. The Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Moses must have been an annual pass holder. He seemed to have unrestricted access to one of the most powerful monarchs on the earth. He just kept going right in to talk to Pharaoh. Verse 14, for at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. The mention of the effect on what was coming on their heart indicates these last signs would be especially terrifying to the Egyptians. Now, the first six signs were terrifying enough, but these next ones would affect uh, affect them in psychological ways that the previous ones had not. Skipping ahead to the ninth sign, you can see how darkness certainly fits that bill. It, It is terrifying in a way that all the previous signs were not. And he says, it's that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. This reminds us these plagues were first and foremost signs pointing to the superiority of the God of the Hebrews. We use signs when we want to be very clear about something, unless we're in the roundabout near Costco. (laughs) How many of you guys like that? Do you like that? I decided, I'll tell you one thing. The other day on my Facebook feed, there was a video made by the highway patrol about how to navigate that. And so my immediate thought was, if you need to teach me how to drive through it, maybe I should avoid it. I mean, seriously. And it does have signs. You've seen the signs, right? There's an arrow and another arrow and then a real squiggly arrow that goes, you know, and then there's a dead pedestrian. Uh, I honestly do have a hard time with it, but I think I understand it now after going around it about 37 times, you know, so God forbid if it was busy, I'm all set for Europe now where they have those with no signs. You ever seen like the ones that people are just like, how many of you have driven overseas in some, like in the third world? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. You're my hero. I almost got killed. But anyway, back to our study. Signs make things clear. That's why we use them. God was speaking to Egypt in a language they would understand. You think, oh God, why are you bringing these plagues? Because they understood power over the natural world. Within these displays of his power was the understanding that obeying God would cause the plagues to cease. And so he's trying to get their attention in a way that they would understand. And within it, he had built in mercy. Verse 15, now if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. God could have destroyed Egypt in any number of ways. He didn't because he was giving Pharaoh and Egypt opportunity to obey him. A byproduct of their disobedience was the display of his mighty power to all who would hear this story We're still hearing it today, thousands of years later. Verse 17, 
as yet you exalt yourself against my people in that you will not let them go. By refusing to let the Hebrews go, Pharaoh would not concede to God's power. He would not yield his own claim to be a God among men, and he would not admit that Egypt's gods were wholly inferior to the God of the Bible. Verse 18, Behold, tomorrow about this time, I will cause very heavy hail to rain down, such as has not been in Egypt since its founding until now. What would seem to the Egyptians to be an apocalyptic hailstorm was coming. It wasn't part of a forecast. You couldn't see clouds forming and there was no report of a storm heading their way. It wasn't hailstorm season. These events were not simply natural occurrences. They were started and stopped by God in a way that made them signs. It would be as if I said hail and all of a sudden we were in the middle of a terrible hailstorm, something like you'd never experienced before. And when it ends, it ends just as rapidly. And so it was, it, it was God putting power on display to try and reach these people to let his people go. Therefore, send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field. For the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home. And they shall die. You'd think by now the Egyptians would take God at his word. And guess what? Some did. Because we read in verse 20... He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his livestock and his servants flee to the houses. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Now, do you get the impression reading this that they predetermined to either believe or disbelieve? That God had this all pre-worked out knowing that they either could or couldn't believe. No, every Egyptian had his or her eyes open by the signs in order to make a personal decision. God gave them a clear choice. Believe and live, disbelieve and die. In wrath, God remembered mercy and by grace, he was freeing their wills to believe him. So he wasn't killing people uh, without distinction. He says, "If, if you do these things, you will live. If you don't, you will die. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire darted to the ground, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail, and fire mingled with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Clear skies until the rod went up. This was God, not simply a freak storm. If you want to put blame on God, account for the fact he gave an evacuation notice. He said, hey, get out of the fields because this is what's going to happen. And if you're out there, you're going to die. No one needed to die. Verse 26, only in the land of Goshen where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. I see this as a clear divide. Uh, Probably if it was in this room, you people, just for the sake of argument, you'd be getting hailed on and you people not. And you'd be, you know, it's not like a storm. You ever drive through a storm and then, you know, it starts off small, then you get into the heart of it and then it kind of trails off. This was like hailstorm, no hailstorm brought immediately by God as a sign to communicate his greatness. The Israelites suffered alongside the Egyptians during the first three signs. Beginning with the fourth, they were noticeably set apart. 
That's another way God was trying to reach the Egyptians, showing them that he could make that distinction. So they'd have to admit, this is not natural, it's supernatural. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time, the Lord is righteous and my people and I are wicked. Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. I like he said, I sinned this time. Well, he'd been sinning all along. So he's trying to minimize his sin. He says, my people and I are wicked. Well, certainly the Egyptians needed to get saved, but it was Pharaoh who stood against God. So this is a lame confession, but the Lord would honor it. He heard Pharaoh's heart and was willing to stop the storm. And so Moses said to him in verse 29, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I'll spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. And so God has foreknowledge that he shares with Moses that no matter what happens during this plague, Pharaoh is still not going to obey him. Now, I keep telling you that foreknowledge isn't foreordination. In other words, just because God knows something doesn't mean he causes it to happen. And so without going too far down a rabbit trail, I want to give you some proof from the Bible that that's so. I'm going to read you some text from 1 Samuel 23, where David, before he's king, is on the run from King Saul, who's trying to kill him. He's holed up in a walled city called Kila, and Saul gets wind of it and heads in that direction. And so the text reads like this. When David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. And then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver you. So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they could. And then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. Now, do you see what happened? God said, the men, Saul is coming and the men of Keilah will deliver him, uh, deliver you over to him. But then David, because he had that knowledge, that foreknowledge from God, He changed the equation by leaving and then Saul broke off. And so God foreknew something was going to happen that turned out didn't happen because there were other probabilities. And so it's a small example, but an important one that just because God foreknew what Pharaoh was going to do, he was not responsible for causing him to do it. It's a very important point theologically uh, when it comes to the nature and the character of God. Now back to our text, verse 31 of chapter 9. Now the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head and the flax was in bud, but the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are later crops. Now this gives us a little bit of a time stamp. All things considered, it was probably February. Looking ahead, the final sign, the death of the firstborn, would take place in April. Egypt suffered quite some time, probably eight months in all, from these plagues, And of course, Egypt suffered for years in the aftermath of these plagues. That's something that we sometimes don't think about. I mean, the hail, and in a minute we're going to see locusts. Uh, They're not going to have any crops at all that season, and it's going to affect them 
for many, many years to come. And so verse 33, so Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord. Then the thunder and the hail ceased and the rain was not poured on the earth. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard. Neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken by Moses. A word about Moses. There was a crazy hailstorm going on. He had to walk in it out of the city before he spread out his hands to the Lord. The ground all around him must have been getting pelted and lit up by lightning strikes. I mean, think about it. I don't even like to go out in the rain because it wets my glasses and then I can't see. And so this is a hailstorm. I don't know how heavy the hailstones were, but they were breaking trees and killing people. And Moses is walking around in this. He says, when I leave you and get out of the city, I'll ask the Lord. And I don't see Moses trenching down and running. I just think he walked and uh, it didn't hail on him. And so, nevertheless, he had to take that step. He had to go for it. And I say, way to go, Moses. And it's a good reminder to us that, see, Moses was being used by God. But God was also working on Moses. The most important work of God is you. Getting into your heart, changing your heart, molding you into the image of Jesus Christ. A lot of times we focus on our service for God, but in that service, God is giving us opportunities to be changed and to grow. And so as Moses is delivering these messages, God hasn't forgotten his servant. He says, Moses, this is a great opportunity for you to grow in faith. You're gonna have to walk around in this hailstorm and trust that I'm not gonna bean you with a... 20 pound hailstone uh, and, and, and when we're serving the Lord same thing that's why things don't always go well when we're serving the Lord because God wants to test our patience he wants to show us our need and our dependence upon him and his grace in his wrath God was extending mercy we've seen in this sign two specific references to God showing mercy first he told Pharaoh that he was holding back his full power Pharaoh was just seeing a fraction of God's real power. And second, by giving the Egyptians a warning to believe and be spared. Have you ever heard the expression, the God of the Old Testament? It's usually a slam against God for being full of wrath in the Old Testament to contrast the compassion of Jesus Christ. Here's what Jesus said about the so-called God of the Old Testament. This is John 14, verse 9. He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. If you keep that in mind, you see him reaching out to save in wrath, remembering mercy. I guess what I'm saying is this. When we read some of these Old Testament stories, we have a tendency to gravitate towards seeing God as wrathful and judgmental and cruel almost. But as we're showing you going through these, God is anything but that. He, in his wrath, which is deserved, is showing incredible mercy and long-suffering and patience with an absolutely rebellious people. Uh, and so the God of the Old Testament as, an, as a uh, type doesn't really exist because Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And so we need to see what happens in the Old Test- Testament through the lens of the New Testament. Father isn't throwing tantrums in the Old Testament. He's working to provide for the plan of human redemption and salvation. Now in chapter 10... When you're disparaged about God's wrath, reiterate his mercy. The most common criticism leveled against God is that he seems to be doing nothing to alleviate human suffering. 
Non-believers accuse him of willful ignorance. Believers sometimes fall away during times of suffering. God has a plan to overcome and end evil once for all. There is a time coming when he's going to wipe away every tear. What's he waiting for? He's not willing that any should perish eternally. He's waiting for you if you're not a Christian. He's waiting for you to get saved. The special kind of waiting is called long-suffering. God is long-suffering with non-believers because eternal separation from him is so much worse than the worst sufferings we might endure today. I mean, don't get me wrong. Many of you and certainly others that we can think of have endured or are enduring terrible sufferings this side of eternity. But when you think about being separated from God in darkness forever and ever and ever, any and all other suffering has to pale in comparison to it. It's like when people make a list of how they would like to die. You know, and and, it's morbid. Maybe I only do this. Am I the only one that does this? People say, oh, I'd like to die in my sleep. Oh, would you rather drown or be burned to death? No one does that? Maybe I should stop while I'm ahead. But anyway, people think about this. And, and, and no matter how bad something is this side of eternity, it's way, way down on the list compared to eternal punishment, eternal suffering. And so that's a little bit of the reason why God tolerates evil right now, working to save individuals. Verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, go in to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants that I may show these signs of mine before him and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things I have done in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them that you may know I am the Lord. Now, I know it's redundant for most of you, but I need to again briefly explain what it means when it says God hardened their hearts. It means that their hearts were strengthened in their own resolve to rebel, despite God's pressure for them to repent. And the example I've been using, it's not a perfect example, but I think it communicates well, is that of the current nation, North Korea. North Korea, Kim Jong-un, has a desire to be a nuclear power, and all the nations of the world are bringing pressure against him to give up his maniacal nuclear program. And the more they pressure him, what happens? The more it hardens and strengthens his heart against the rest of the world and the deeper he goes into that program. And so this is similar to what is happening between God and Pharaoh. God is not making Pharaoh uh, hard so that he can't repent. He is pressuring him so that he will repent and Pharaoh's heart is growing harder in his own resolve. And so verse 3, so Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me or else if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory and they'll cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth. They shall eat the residue of what is left, which remains to you from the hail. They shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They shall fill your houses, the houses of your servants, the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your father's fathers have seen since the day that uh, they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. 1875, the largest locust swarm in recorded history here in the American Midwest, 198,000 square miles. To give you a size comparison, that's bigger than the state of California by 
30,000 square miles. The swarm was estimated to contain several trillion locusts, probably weighed several million tons. Ugh. <laughs> then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? It's a big deal to accuse Pharaoh. He was considered a god. But you see in this episode the hardness of the human heart. And you see the lengths God is willing to go to reach that hard heart. Their hearts were so hard, it took eight plagues to get them to even begin to think they should obey God. Eight plagues. This one coming. I guess you could say seven, but they were in the eighth phase. To say, hey, our hearts finally are broken. Let's go ahead and obey God. Their hearts were so precious that God was willing to strive with them. Asking his own people to suffer first through some of the plagues and then to continue in their slavery for months while God continued to deal with the Egyptians. And so the hardness of the heart and the desire of God to reach those hard hearts. Verse 8, so Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh and he said to them, go serve the Lord your God. Uh, Who's going? And Moses said, we will go with our young and our old, our sons and our daughters, our flocks and our herds will go for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, the Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware for evil is ahead of you. Not so. Go now you who are men and serve the Lord for that is what you desired. And they were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh pretends to care about the young and he says, I won't let you take your young ones. He drove them out and said, just take the men, knowing that they wouldn't leave if their children were behind. And so Pharaoh always sounds like he wants to do the right thing, but he wants to hold on to power as well. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts and the locusts went up over the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously, it had been no such locusts as they nor shall there be such after them. They covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened. They ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. There remained nothing green on the trees, on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. And so you have all the creep factor of swarming locusts. Ugh. You ever ever just thought something was in your pants? You know, don't you just, you think, you know, Black Widow got here? When we were, uh, no offense to you people from Texas, but the one time I was in San Antonio at a men's retreat, I noticed all the men were turned their pants inside out uh, before they went to bed at night. So that's why in the morning they could see all the critters that were on their pants. And then when they turned them outside in or right side in, how's it, was it? Inside out, right side in? Is that right? No, that can't be right. Anyway, uh, when they turned their pants normal again, everything was fine. I thought, where am I? So for that, it's kind of creepy. You ever almost get into an accident because something's flying around in your car? The old wasp in the car trick? I don't know why that's so terrifying. He's probably going to leave you alone. Oh. Anyway. And then all the remaining plant food sources in Egypt were going to be gone. This was bleak. 
This is why it was so terrifying. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin this once and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. And he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord turned a very strong west wind, which took the locusts and blew them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt. Not one. One minute, you can't even see the sun because they're so thick. They're in your pants. They're in your shirt. They're all over you. They're crawling everywhere. And the next minute, they're totally gone. I just got a text saying, locusts are high in protein. <laughs> so maybe if you're an Egyptian, you think, hey, we got some food for, you know, there's no more crops, but we'll eat some low. God took care of that. He got rid of every last one of them. This was a more honest expression of his sin, but it still wasn't sincere. Verse 20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the children of Israel go. Does it make biblical sense that God was punishing Pharaoh for not doing something he was preventing him from doing? No, that makes God a monster, which he is not. Pharaoh is not a puppet whose decisions were predetermined. Again, we've discussed that at length. The Lord signs the pressure were strengthening his resolve to continue to defy God. Now, in each series of three signs, the third comes upon Egypt with no warning to Pharaoh. And this one would be incredible. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Sun was out in Goshen. At night, they had their oil lamps as usual. The sense I get in Egypt is that even if you were to light a lamp, it remained pitch black. It says they felt the darkness and no one moved for three straight days. This is an oppression. It's not just dark. It's not like Boyden Caves where they turn the lights off for a couple of minutes. Every time I've ever been in one of these caves, some kid has those shoes that light up. I just, please, take your shoes off. So, I, I, you know, you think, okay, I want to experience the total darkness, you know, for 10 seconds or whatever it is. And then here's Johnny over here. Anyway. This is the kind of darkness you did not want to experience. And they literally were paralyzed by it. Terrifying. Verse 24, Pharaoh called to Moses and said, go, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones go with you. Pharaoh, you're so close to doing the right thing. Just give it up. But Moses said, you must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And even we don't know with what we must serve the Lord till we get there. It might sound strange until you remember they they didn't have the law of Moses. They were on their way to get it to Mount Sinai. Part of their leaving Egypt was to receive all of that. And so Moses said, we we need to make allowances. There's probably going to be some sacrifices. And so you guys, you Egyptians, you're going to give us some animals to take. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. And Pharaoh said to them, get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more. For in the day that you see my face, you shall die. So Moses said, you've spoken well. I will never see your face again. Now, 
Some of you, if you read down into chapter 11, it looks like Moses and Pharaoh have another conversation. Some people struggle with that, think it's a contradiction. Actually, chapter 11 is the same conversation continuing. We're just uh, obeying the chapter break because we're dealing with the signs three at a time. And the tenth sign, the death of the firstborn, is something that we want to take a, a bigger look at. So no contradiction. Moses uses the never word. We might be tempted to say that God's long-suffering ended. But God's going to give Pharaoh and the Egyptians one final chance in the tenth sign, the death of the firstborn. And God gives clear instructions how to avoid death. Over and over and over and over and over again, now nine times, God was reaching out to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. When people disparage you about God's wrath or what they perceive as his reluctance to do anything to alleviate suffering, the real issue is something deeper and something personal. It is a heart issue. Their hearts are strengthened against God. I mean, God, if you knew everything that the Lord was doing to reach a person, it would probably astonish you. Some of you who've been saved later in life can look back on your spiritual journey and the ways that God was trying to reach you uh, and trying to communicate with you. And it's amazing to see this. And so it isn't that God can't deal with evil or he's reluctant to. It's that he tolerates it because of the greater good of seeing people saved. Drawing from the ninth sign, we remember that the Apostle John said this, this is condemnation. Light has come into the world, speaking of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You say, wait a minute, the Egyptians certainly did not love darkness, did they? Well, yes, they did in one sense, and here it is. As terrifying as it was, the majority refused to repent and believe God. They endured a terrifying darkness rather than turn to God. We don't read of them crying out to God from the darkness. They, said, they just hunkered down, didn't move, didn't do anything until the darkness was lifted. And then what? Well, they could see they, there was sunlight, there was lamplight, but they were still in spiritual darkness. And that's what that darkness was meant to convey. Might it have been a foretaste of hell? In Matthew's gospel, hell is described as outer darkness. Some people claim to have had out-of-body experiences and have gone to hell. The Egyptians had an in-the-body experience, but most of them came out of it still rejecting God. It's as if God was saying, this is what eternity will be like if you don't obey me. I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you three days to think about eternal life. It's going to be way worse than this, obviously, because it goes on forever. Now, the world around us, spiritually speaking, is a kingdom of darkness. We say that, and we believe that. Sometimes I think we're thinking of the worst parts of the world. Drug addicts, alcoholics, prostitutes, people who are in real darkness. But the whole world, outside of Christianity, outside of the temple of God, the whole world is in darkness. And so you see, you're in a darkness that doesn't seem oppressive, but it's spiritual. So people, they go about their lives, they have successful lives and careers, they help people, they're, they're not all that bad. But the Lord says, you're either saved or you're lost. And if you're lost, you're in a kingdom of darkness, and this is where you're headed. 
And so people love darkness rather than light. Anybody who rejects Christ when they have an opportunity to receive him loves darkness by definition. Now they would say they don't, but that's just because they don't realize that they're in it. If you're not a believer, you're like the contestants on that Discovery Channel show, except you can't get out by your own efforts. Here's how you get out of darkness. Colossians 1.13 says, God has delivered us from the power of darkness, and he has conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son. You have to be saved by grace. Nothing you can do, no works uh, that can save you. But when you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead for your sins, God transfers you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light that is ruled by his son. You're saved. You're born again. Once you're in that light, then 1 Peter 2, 9 says, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're his special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so you're saved out of darkness into the light to speak back into darkness about the light so that others can get saved. And this is what's been going on for centuries as God has been moving and working to save individuals who are lost in darkness and need to be delivered. If you're not a believer here today, you're in a terrible spiritual darkness. And the answer to it is the light of the world, Jesus Christ. We are, who are saved are in his light and we have his light. Hide it under a bushel? No. What are we going to do? We're going to let it shine. Let's pray.